It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. He does have some insight into the bad USB exploit ahead of the black hat reveal. He'll also talk about password managers and one thing nobody should try. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 467, recorded August 5th, 2014. Browser Password Managers. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. Save 50% off with a 12-month subscription. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN50 at checkout. And by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW and you'll get two bonus months with purchase. And by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku computer or mobile device. For 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your uh, security and privacy online with this fellow right here, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson, our security guru. Yo, Leo. <laughs> From GRC.com. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Hey. Is this an unusually busy week for you because Black Hat is this week? You know, I was thinking about that. Not only do we have Black Hat this week, but in a couple of weeks, we have the Usenix secu- the 23rd annual Usenix Security Conference. I think it's down in San Diego. I'm not sure. And that's where the guys who are... Uh, going to deliver this browser password managers page or pa- paper and research are presenting. So, so the week I, I think it will be next week's podcast, which is I mean I would imagine Black Hat is probably going to provide us with weeks plural weeks of of interesting stuff. I scrolled through the listing of presentation is like, ooh, that could be good. And ooh, that could be good. And ooh, you know, so, and of course, today we're going to talk about bad USB, which is the is being presented on uh, in two days on Thursday. And the press just w- went, buzz, you know, ballistic as they tend to. Uh, and so we have two major things I want to talk about, which is we're, we are going to get to the to the browser password managers page which research will be delivered, as I, as I mentioned, uh, later this month. Um, and I, we have to talk about bad USB. Uh, HP did a quick little sort of self-serving analysis, but still interesting uh, t- uh, analysis of the security of 10 Internet of Things gadgets. Uh, a 17-year-old Australian figured out how to disable PayPal's two-factor authentication. And I wanted to talk briefly. I got some numbers and things about Google's uh, identifying that uh, the photography, the... the uh, Child uh, porn image. 
the child porn image in uh, in someone's email. So, you know, and of course, that sort of like raises people's hackles is like, wait a minute, Google's looking at our email. But and I, and I saw you on Twit mention the good news that it's a, I think it's we, a hash. I think it was kind of fun. We, we figured it out on Twit. At first, yeah. I was my hackles were, you know, raised and I brought it up because of that. Like, what does this mean? And uh, fortunately, we had a smart panel on Sunday, and they uh, they, they, they talked me off the ledge. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was Chad really gets credit for finding the article, and then uh, Lindsay Turrentine explained how that might work. And you know yep. uh, what I didn't know, Alan Malventano was on uh, Twit Sunday as well, and he's an N- he was an NSA analyst. Yeah, he never told us <laughs> that. We knew he he was a Navy was, chief and a submariner. Yeah, it was fun too because he was. You know, on the down low, he said, well, I really can't talk too much more about that. Uh, he, he made a big point uh, of saying, but look, we had rules and we had, were trained carefully to follow those rules. Yes, I thought those were good. You know, he, he made you're right. He made a point of saying that, you, you know, from the outside, the Snowden stuff is, you know, seems extreme. But, you know, he was sitting at a terminal and he was able to say, look, you have to understand at every stage we were being told if if anything comes up or you run across anything that deals with Americans, delete it or you know change the page or stop or hit escape or whatever it is. I mean, so I mean, it was really pounded into them that they are not here to to dredge up information or have have any contact with U.S. citizens. So that it was good to hear from, you know, from somebody who's got no cross to bear on the inside. Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. So password managers, we're going to talk about bad USB. I don't know if yep. you want to talk about the Synology crypto locker variant. Have you heard about that? Heard about it. I haven't had a chance to yeah. dig into it yet. Well, so. there's, not, there's probably not much to say except that if you have a Synology that is out on the public Internet, you want to make sure you use the latest version of their DSM software, um, the Synology Disk Manager, whatever it is. Uh, 5.0, I th- we, Synology is analyzing it. We'll know later in the day if it's uh, uh, susceptible or not, but they think it's not. Uh, what we did here, we have a few Synologies uh, that are public so that we can use them, and we've taken them offline. Oh, good. And, and so, yeah, so just, so just for those who don't know, that's a network-attached storage system oh, yes thank you <laughs> yeah minor <laughs> detail what is that yeah and, and so apparently the crypto locker folks decided hey there's you know something huge we could encrypt lord knows what they charge in order to decrypt 0.6 it because, bitcoins okay well that's you know that's so a little uh, more than 350 bucks i think not pocket change no. but yeah uh, uh, and they, well I, here's I, what's interesting about it and it doesn't bode well it instead of being a, a pull attack like you get email and then you put malware on your system uh because the synologies are online this is a yes. a, a worm it's a push attack so yes uh, that's a little worrisome yes that's big worrisome we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on that let's uh, let's take a little bit of a break when we come back uh, the top security stories with steve gibson uh our show today brought to you by pro xpn as if you listen to security now you know that we are under attack. <laughs> we are our privacy uh, is being assaulted all the time, not just by the NSA, but by our internet service providers, by bad guys at open access points. If you're at a coffee shop, uh, you can get you can easily get uh, spied upon. The good solution for this is an open VPN. Now, unless you want to run your own open VPN server, uh, the best way to do this would be a hosted VPN 
server, and that's what ProXPN is. It's a global virtual private network, works with almost any inter internet connection, creates a secure encrypted tunnel through which all your online data passes out into the world. So somebody in a coffee shop can't see the traffic. Uh, your internet service provider can't see the traffic. We've seen people use solutions like this, for instance, to test whether uh, their internet service provider is uh, throttling their Netflix, for instance. Uh, it's a really great way to protect yourself online. It also solves problems of geographic uh, restrictions for internet content because they have servers worldwide, U.S., U.K., Asia, and more. Uh, they have software, too. Uh, you can run it without software, but their specialized software for Windows and Mac gives you more advanced control. Select ports, connect it, startup, even select which programs would be shut down should your anonymous link be interrupted or compromised. Uh, if you, your ISP, as most do, uh, participates in that six strikes program, that means they're watching your traffic. They're watching what you do. That's how they know. And uh, the best way to handle that, just encrypt it. It uh, works via OpenVPN, or if you can't use OpenVPN, which we recommend it, they also support PPTP, 512-bit encryption, 2048-bit keys. I mean, this is really, it's the way you want to go. And if they've got a special offer for our uh, viewers, uh, if you use the offer code SN50 at checkout, you're going to save 50% off the mo monthly price when you sign up for a year. That's a good deal. That makes it less than 5 bucks a month for ProXPN. And that's good forever for the lifetime of your account. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit for more information. ProXPN. I bet you people try to go to ProVPN. It's not Pro... V it is VPN, but it's at ProXPN, okay? ProXPN.com slash twit. The offer code for this, SN50, SN50, for 50% off. They do accept Visa, PayPal, and Bitcoin. I like that. ProXPN.com slash twit offer code sn50 leo laporte steve gibson talking about the tech uh, security news of the day so um hp made a little bit of news that got picked up in the press i thought was interesting just because you know we've been talking about a huge problem that we're going to see in the future that we, and and the fact that one of the one of the reasons that this has occurred is that companies that are producing internet connected appliances ha haven't had like application targeted protocols that they could use anybody doing a server a router a browser you know there's a a fund there's a foundation of protocols that you just implement and you you have a solution but we don't really have anything that fits the the particular profile that Internet of Things devices require. The good news is the industry, you know, is now awake to the issue of security and the fact that there is, a, you know, that the Internet of Things is a thing. And there's, as we talked about a couple podcasts ago, there are three different sort of interrelated efforts underway specifically to create a protocol for light bulbs and and dishwashers and the famous pasta machine and things that we want to connect for whatever reason to the internet anyway hp has a a secure an application security unit called fortify and they did an analysis of the 10 
most popular consumer internet things on the market. And they re- they didn't tell us which ones for, for actually for the sake of those things because that would probably be a problem. But they just put together a sort of a nice sketch of what they found. They reported two of a total of within those 10 devices, 250 individual security vulnerabilities in aggregate um, for like, so like an average of 25 faults each, although they weren't evenly uh, distributed. Um, so they didn't identify the the specific things, but they, they did give us some bullet points of like, <clears throat> these are the kind of, this is what we consider a, a security problem. So eight of the 10 devices failed to require a stronger password than one, two, three, four. So either on the device or on its, comp- or, or its corresponding support or, you know, connection or control site. So again, we're, we're sort of seeing some of the same learning pains that, that we've all gone through over the last 15 years on the internet being repeated and, and device manufacturers are saying, well, you know, do we really need a strong password on a light bulb? Uh, you know, who cares? And, and of course, the problem is that if that light bulb also has your Wi-Fi password, which is strong, but its access password is weak, then potentially someone could get to it and then use it to bootstrap themselves into your greater network, which is why last week, in fact, we, we one of our Q&A questions was, how do I really create a segmented Wi-Fi network where I can put all of those things I don't really, I'm not sure I can trust until they mature off on their own space and, and not risk, you know, the, my mature PC and Mac and, and mobile device network where security has been a, more of a focus. Um, seven of the 10 devices did no encryption when communing, communicating with the internet or a local network. Um, six of the devices had weak security on their interfaces, were vulnerable to persistent cross-site scripting attacks, um, which we've talked about in detail in the podcast. Weak default sign-on credentials uh, sometimes didn't even encrypt their passwords. They just sent them in the clear. So, you know, we're, 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 it's distressing to see in, a, in an environment where security is not hard anymore. It's not difficult. And you could argue that people are being trained to expect it. I mean, like to be willing to come up with a, a longer password than one, two, three, four, that it's like we're starting over from scratch. However, I do think that from the initiatives we've been seeing, this will get fixed quickly. We're not going to drag this on for 10 years, but, you know, our listeners need to be aware that the, that these devices are not currently very mature um uh oh and we we've talked about this in various contexts but six of the devices did not encrypt the software updates during download so as we've seen bad guys could create and actually have created um malware which abuses the ability of them to essentially treat these like little computers that are also on your network um and nine of the 10 devices collected at least some kind of personal information, email address, home address, name, date of birth, uh, whatever. So 
anyway, that that was HP's little like, look, you know, the security of these things is important. Um, and Fortify is something that they're selling that's a uh, it's supposed to test the app, the, the security of these. And I think that this was HP's way of saying, you know, folks, if you used our Fortify facility, you would have found these. I'm not sure whether the people who are making these things care yet. I think the market's going to have to, you know, make them shape up. Um, there was an interesting bypass, and not the first one, but this is actually more worrisome, of PayPal's two-factor authentication. We talked about this years back. I still have right here, still working, going strong, my little original PayPal football. <laughs> Me too. That we, that, yeah. We talked about this funny. a lot. Uh, yeah, and and you know I'm very conscious. I assume I can change the battery when it dies. I don't want to have to switch to the e-ink card, but I turn it on, memorize the six digits, and turn it off immediately so that whatever battery power it has, it keeps as long as it can. Because you know I'm a, a believer in that. The bad news is what this uh, Joshua Rogers is a 17 year old white hat hacker in Australia. He contacted PayPal two months ago, and he said, you know, I really think you've made this, like, too easy. Uh, what, what he discovered was, and it sounds like he was actually doing this himself. He has a PayPal account, and he was an eBay user. And some time ago, uh, uh, PayPal allowed eBay or eBay allowed PayPal, I'm not sure which direction it came from, to link your accounts. And I actually use it myself and it's convenient. Uh, when, when I, because I, you know, I sometimes see old antique computers and things on PayPal, I mean on eBay, and I think, oh, I have to, <laughs> have to add that to my collection. So um, you're able to just say, buy it. And once you've linked your eBay account to your PayPal account, that's all you need to do. Now, you have to be logged in on both. So so I think that's the way PayPal justifies the fact that this is a second factor bypass. I mean, any any other time that I'm purchasing something with PayPal. I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, main, you know, restricting the spread of my personal credit card information. So especially if it's a site that seems a little sketchy where, you know, it's like, okay, I really don't want to give these people my credit card information. Um, I'm happy when I see a PayPal button there. When I click it, invariably, they bounce me to PayPal I look at the URL, make sure that it's an EV cert, so it's green and glowing. I'll float the cursor over, and it'll say verify, you know, identity verified by VeriSign, because that's where PayPal gets their certs. Um, so I do that stuff, and when I enter my my username and password, it then sees that I'm set up for two-factor authentication, bounces me to there, where I have to press the button on my little football, get six digits, put it in, and so forth. And all that works. None of that's necessary when I buy something through eBay. After I've linked my accounts, it's just done. And so, okay, how was that done? Well, it appears that it was, uh, and there's been no response. What happened was Joshua 
notify he did the responsible disclosure thing two months ago he notified paypal that just by putting the phrase equals underscore integrated hyphen registration in adding that to a u an, a, a url inbound to paypal they don't do second factor authentication <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable and and it's like, oh, and in fact, he has a on his blog page, I've got links in the in the show notes if anyone's interested. On his blog page, he's got this big monster hairy link. But sure enough, you can click it and it's got that little phrase added to the URL and it doesn't ask you for a second factor. You, you do need the first factor, so you need to know the user's password. But the whole point of second factor is that that, may not be secure enough so you need something that is in the case of the football is a time-based six digits that's changing every 30 seconds so but you say equals underscore integrated hyphen registration no football no second factor Mm. even if you're using the e-ink card so joshua good going now everybody uh, knows how to do that and I'm yep. going to even use it. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a like convenience put my, factor. Put my football away. <laughs> Don't have your football with you? Just add that to it. I've always yeah. felt and like so, places like that where uh, they have then a link. It says if you don't have your football. And a lot uh, of times the, they really bypass the second factor in general. I know, you know. I know. And in fact, if I, it's funny you, you mentioned that because I just launched Squirrel. And if I look at, I get the exact uh, settings and options. I've got one here: request no recourse identity lock, there you go. and request disable non-squirrel login. Love it. And so the idea is, if you are once you become confident of the way Squirrel is working for you, you can turn these on. They get stored with your identity, and that it, that those are. You, there's no way for at the client side to I- enforce it, but it indicates an, a desire on the user for the behavior of the server. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, that, and that's why I phrased it as request because I want to make sure people didn't didn't misunderstand. It's, it's optional. Yes, yes. Th- th- we're asking the site, please set a flag at your end that that this is what I'm going to use because that's the way the user gets the maximum level of security. And so as you, exactly as you said, all of these things, which are, I don't have my football with me. Well, okay. If, if there was an option I had to turn, to remove that from my account, I would. Because I'll take, the whole point is I want to take responsibility. Otherwise, you don't really have second factor authentication. You've just got more, you know, a way of the, the human factor working around it. Exactly as you say, Leo. So, uh, Google made some news uh, that we, we were talking about um, because they spotted some um, illegal, uh, explicit child pornography in somebody's email, someone's Google mail, and notified the authorities. So, we learned a few things which were interesting. Um, Google, a Google spokesperson told Business Insider that, uh, that broke this story, all Internet companies have to deal with child sexual abuse. 
It's why Google actively removes illegal imagery from our services, including Search and Gmail, and immediately reports abuse to NCMEC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, Are they legally uh, required to do that? Well, it, it, the way, yes, the way it works is if they know, they must report. Got it. So if they don't look, then they cannot be held responsible. But Google wants to. There, there, there's uh, Jacqueline Fuller is the director of Google Giving. And she blogged about this actually about a year ago uh, and had some good information there, too. Uh, uh, she said in 2011, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's uh, Cyber Tip Line Child Victim Identification Program, there's an acronym for you, <laughs> re, uh, reviewed 17.3 million images. Mm and videos of suspected child sexual abuse. This is four times more than what their Exploited Children's Division saw in 2007. So that's, what, uh, four years difference. For, uh, for factor of four growth of these images in four years. And she says, and the number is still growing. Behind these images are real, vulnerable kids who are sexually victimized and victimized further through the distribution of their images. Then she says, since 2008, we've used hashing technology to tag known child sexual abuse images, allowing us to identify duplicate images which may exist elsewhere. Each offending image, in effect, gets a unique ID that our computers can recognize without humans having to view them again. Recently, we've started working to incorporate encrypted fingerprints of child sexual abuse images into a cross-industry database. This will enable companies, law enforcement, and charities to better collaborate on detecting and removing these images and to take action against the criminals. Today, we've also announced, and it goes on. But so uh, the idea is... There, there is a an industry-wide consortium um, who are finding these images, hashing them, and 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 collectively creating a shared database of hashes. And if ISPs or email providers and so forth spot the hash collisions, um, then that causes them to look more closely. Now. It's not clear to me how the images are first seen. You know, who, who or where initially looks at these and decides, oh, wow, that's not okay, and then submits it. Someone is doing that somewhere. Um, we assume that Google is just using an automated hash collision in order to make that determination. So, but, you know, that, that's what the technology is. Um, yeah, and so, and that's, I, so people are very upset that Google is looking at their mail. But it strikes me, I mean, nobody, first of all, no human is looking at this. That's not, or maybe they are, but that's not necessary to match these hashes. This, these are generated. Um, it's not a big deal to generate a hash across every image. You're already probably compressing it and doing other stuff to it anyway. Right. You're moving it around. You're storing it on servers. You could comp compute a hash quickly. If it matches the database, then I imagine something happens, whether it's a Google human or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Kids human. 
at that point, some human probably looks at that image, makes sure that the match, the hash is not a mismatch. Although, as we've yeah. talked about, hashing technology is very good. If you have a hash match, I would imagine that's that's, an, that's the image, right? Well, if yes, if I mean, you, we know that there's the possibility of a collision. We don't know how large the hashes are. If it was an SHA-256, that's what everybody is using now. It's what I'm using for squirrel IDs. It's what Bitcoin is using for for user addresses. I mean, those are, you know, bit, bits are cheap. The and and a, an S, an SHA-256 just has a, you know, I can't say zero, but you know, it's it's, it's so ridiculously close to zero. I think it's got. I've forgotten now how many, you know, zero point, and it's, it's like 77 zeros or something, and then a two or something. Of course, if they drew the, a yeah, mustache on the kid, then the hash would be broken. Yes. But that's and not how these guys tend to work. They collect correct. They're these. Not, they're, they're, not, they're not technical. Well, yes. they all were. you would have to do is, re, if you just recompressed it at a different JPEG, actually, even with if you just recompressed the JPEG, it would end up with a different hash. Yeah, right, but that's not what they're doing. Anything. They're collecting. They're thousands yes. of images. And yes. so uh, I think there's nothing wrong with this. This is great. No, it I, does I not intrude right. on it's your privacy in any ultra, way. Yes, ultra-low false positive rate. And and if it did collide, I'm sure it comes to the attention of a oh, person. A human and looks it, at it at some point if, before. If, and if, if it's a tree, then they're like, okay, fine. Right. You know, He likes maples. Right. So, you know, he's not a problem. I just don't see uh, people are acting as if there's somebody reading their mail and looking at their images. No, and, and that's not what's now, and, and as we know, Google's model is to have machines looking at looking for keywords in mail in order to show you ads that are relevant to the subject. That's what you get in return. I mean, that's what happens in return for the for the free email system with all of its many bells and whistles and features. Right, so, right. yeah, big deal. Big it's a deal. computer. Yeah, yeah. So, bad USB, bad USB, bad. I can't wait. Um, I really want to hear your take on this. Okay, so uh, in two days, uh, two German researchers at the at the German uh, security research labs, Karsten Knoll and Jacob Lell, are going to, well, I would say shock the world, except that the cat's out of the bag. And I mean, oh, my God, the, the, the headlines have been ridiculous. You know, uh, uh, Ars Technica, bad USB exploit makes devices turn evil. Uh, wired, why the security of USB is fundamentally broken. Gizmodo, USB has a fundamental security flaw that you can't detect. And then I think extreme tech was maybe the most extreme, extreme hype. They said massive undetectable security flaw found in USB. It's time to get your PS2 keyboard out of the cupboard. It's like, okay. Uh, so so here's, okay, and, and I listened to you guys on Twit, and you gave this some good coverage, um, and, and really, you got everything right. The surprise is that, that uh, we don't have numbers yet. I think this is going to this is the a kind of story that's going to end up having some legs to it because they're, they're, this is big, potentially. But they discovered that a surprising number of USB, and they're specifically addressing thumb drives, but it's probably bigger than that, have, are, are in the first place, firmware-based. That is, there's a sophist USB is a sophisticated protocol and 
So you don't just have a memory chip and hook it up to those four wires of USB. Actually, two of them are five volts and ground power. So one wire is in serial data and the other is out. But there's a, a very complicated protocol which for which you need a processor behind it in order to to exchange you know handshakes we know for example we've we've talked about tcp protocol where you send a packet and they and they, you get a packet from them and you're negotiating things and you're looking you're saying hey this is what i can do and and what can you do and you know this this back and forth that requires intelligence at each end of the link and over time that intelligence has become much cheaper and ubiquitous so so what we've ended up with is computers true computers to support this protocol in everything if it's if it's usb it's a computer unless and we were talking about this too a technically a power outlet you know a, a power adapter doesn't have to support the protocol um, it's able to just say you know it just does the five volts and, and ground pins um, and and something hooks up and realizes okay I'm just this is just a power tap there's no brains here and, and in fact it would be an evil power tap that did have brains because then it could try to get up to some nonsense and that's an example of this kind of exploit but what these guys realized was, or, or basically were, have been the first to report, these computers, unfortunately, are reprogrammable. That is, they are, they're non-volatile memory firmware, and the firmware can be changed. So they're not burned in ROM and in fact, they, what's, they, they, they didn't even have a, a, a fusible link blown after they were written because there, there are a lot of technologies now where you can write something and after you've written it and reread it and confirmed that it works, you, you blow a fuse in the chip that prevents that data from ever being read out. That's often done for proprietary reasons, you know, to, to, to keep proprietary code in the chip in there. And then it can, it'll only execute the code. It won't allow you external access to it. These guys have found, and we don't know details because we won't know for two days. We'll, we'll probably come back to this next week and just talk about what we actually learned from their report. Because everything that I, I looked at, Every story, I looked at their own site. They have a site, srlabs.de slash badusb. But there's not much more there yet. And, I, you know, you can't blame them. They don't want, to, they want us all to care about what their presentation is going to be in, in two days. What we know is that, that they spent apparently a substantial amount of time reverse engineering a, a, some number of thumb drives – and their what what their point is is that USB is a powerful protocol, and they're going to show proof of concept exploits where what looks like and was originally when it shipped a you know sixteen gig thumb drive is now something else. They reprogrammed the firmware. 
And, and remember, it's a computer. We think of it as storage. But in order to, in order to support the USB protocol, you got to have a computer. And so they've reprogrammed it to do bad, to be evil. And, and there are many things it could do. For example, if somebody looks at it from, a, from its file system, it could look empty. Except it could also, if it got left in the, the, the socket of a computer, which is booted, it could see that when power comes up, um, there's nobody around you know, at that point. The OS is not yet booted, but we know that many systems will boot from USB. So it could suddenly offer a boot image at that time, which is otherwise stealth and doesn't appear. So when you stick it in and look at it, it's empty. But when it's already in and the computer powers up, it's a boot image and it takes over. So that's an example of what happens when you merge the intelligence that these devices all have with the ability to change what they do. It is a powerful protocol. Now, the reason this is not as dire as, as at least as the articles have said, and and so far they've not talked about mitigation except to that is publicly, except to say, well, firmware images need to be signed. Okay, well that won't work. I mean that uh, it's not clear to me what signing the firmware image, how that helps. That would that might help maybe the device to defend itself against modification, but that's trivial for it to do. Just arrange it not to be writable after you ship it. I mean, like with the fusible link or any of a number of, of approaches. So so the you it seems to me the right way to look at this is that the user is has has the the onus essentially of responsibility. And that is what these guys are saying. They're saying, I mean, the, the, the hyperbole in these pay uh, in these news images or the, these news stories is crazy. It's like once a USB drive has ever been inserted into a untrusted computer, you can never trust it again. It's like, okay. So, well, a couple of questions know. come up though. First of all, okay, good. Do they have to make USB drives with writable, electronically writable firmware? No. You could make it with ROM. Absolutely. Nothing. This must just be convenience. It's convenience because they, in the manufacture process, may realize, oh, shoot, we screwed it up. Bring them all back. We'll rewrite the firmware. Well, and they they may well, for example, for efficiency, I would I would imagine that same processor is doing the memory management. We've talked a lot about like wear leveling and so forth. Mm-hmm. It may also be the memory controller. So in that case, you just want to use one chip for all of your different memory types and sizes and configurations. So the programmability of it would be a huge cost saving. They, they you know, can order uh, 10 times more of, of one chip and then program it for the particular application that they're uh, using it for. So there's a, okay. So, because I thought, hey, ROM's got to be cheaper. If you could get a perfect ROM, then that would be the cheapest way. But you're right. If you want to have, you know, a million chips and use half of them for one thing and half of them for another, then right. rewritable firmware is good. But you could have it be PROM, right? Yes. It doesn't yes. have to be EEPROM. 
right. It ought to, it ought to be. So again, they don't care. You know, they're, it, it doesn't really matter to them. They've shipped you a thing that does what they said it does. It stores data. They also shipped you a reprogrammable computer that you weren't expecting. And so it doesn't hurt them. I mean, they have no obligation. Now, maybe if maybe if this gets enough traction, they'll start advertising, you know, locked down thumb drive cannot be reprogrammed, you know, guaranteed not to be evil. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, I but, bet somebody will. But, and that's the other question is, is anybody doing that now just because they do? We said on Twitter, and I don't know why, uh, who said this? I can't remember if it was Alan or maybe Lindsay, that, that Iron Key, which, of course, we've talked about as the ultimate in secure USB storage, is vulnerable. I don't know if it's, it well, is. It's, it's explicitly updatable. The firmware can be updated, <laughs> and we don't and know. They make that a, they make that a selling point. Yep. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, okay, so the solution. USB is divided into device classes. There's like, you know, and we all know what they are. Audio, I.O., modem, Ethernet, Wi-Fi, keyboard, mouse, joystick, video, webcam, scanner, printer, mass storage. It could be a hub, a Bluetooth adapter, an IR. I mean, think about it. Think about how incredibly versatile this thing is. This, I mean, this has been a, an incredible success. And I saw some stories talking about this was being the fault of the USB consortium, you know, not providing security. It's like, wait a minute. Let's remember our history. All of this predated any concern for history. I mean, people were using monkey as their approved password back when USB was starting. You know, the fact that this worked at all was a miracle, let alone, you know, worrying about the security of it. So... So what we have is a very versatile, very powerful bus. But unlike Firewire and Thunderbolt, which we've talked about, which are, they are bus mastering capable, meaning that if, that if you have an active Firewire port, or Thunderbolt, which is a sa the same technology, you actually can get on the bus. That, that is the system's processor bus. You can suck memory, the, like the main memory, out of out of a laptop by having a FireWire port. DMA. Because it, yes, direct exactly, memory direct access. memory access. Yeah. USB is not that. Um, USB is a host-managed master-slave relationship. So when you plug a USB device into your computer and this protocol I've been talking about starts up, in this interchange, the, the computer says, the host says to the slave, or the, or the master says to the slave, what are you? And the thing says, I'm, an, I'm a speaker. And so... The OS says, oh, okay, and looks around to see if it's got speaker drivers for the USB. Says, oh, yeah, okay, we're set to go. And it loads those up, and off we go. Or it says, I'm a keyboard. And, and the, the computer says, oh, okay. And so there's an HID, a human interface device driver, which it, it connects up 
and becomes a keyboard. The point is, this is completely under the management of the operating system. Today, because this has never been a concern, that is, when you plug in a thumb drive, it's a thumb drive. And it identifies it as such. If you plugged it in and it said it was a keyboard, and that's one of the the exploits these guys talking about. Remember that when I encountered Stina at the top of the escalator uh, at, 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 at the security conference in San Francisco, and she says, I have a one-time password device, and it was a US, little tiny USB thing. And I said, because <laughs> I immediately understood that this would type this crypto thing in for you. The, that was, it was the power of USB that made that possible. Yeah, but, uh, but ma- now I, that I think of it, YubiKey uh, is subject to bad USB too, isn't it? You can reprogram a YubiKey. It's writable. There is, there is some control. I don't know how much they <laughs> may not offer, have a lot of but, storage. Yeah. But you could yeah. reprogram so, it. So here's my point. The, I don't, we don't know. I mean, this has got people worried. And what these guys have discovered or really just noticed is that because we're we're these devices are now reprogrammable computers they and they apparently can be taken over you don't have to break them open and put wires on them apparently they can be reprogrammed through the USB that is there is there is a way to get into the device just through the USB, that would allow malware to jump onto the device when you plug it into someone's computer. Now, again, this is, you know, it's like what version, what what type of processor, is it a custom chip? I mean, there's like a whole bunch of other things that all have to line up perfectly for this to work. But the possibility is there. And the Black Hat, he, they're going to demonstrate it with a particular chip from a particular company right yeah um but if you plug this into your computer right now because we're all trusting usb the the so-called enumeration occurs automatically all we have to do if the if the industry decides this is a problem is unfortunately there's going to be some user cost that is, in terms of involvement, remember, the convenience versus security. But it would pop up a dialogue and say, hi there, this thing is trying to be a keyboard. And you say, wait a minute, that's, that's storage. It shouldn't be able to type anything. And so you say, uh, no, don't let this be a keyboard. So my point is the, the master, the host has ultimate say, ultimate control over whatever it is you plug into your USB port. The USB device declares what it is. At the moment, for ease of use, and because we've all been trusting of USB, the the OS just does it for us. All we have to do is bring up a dialogue and give permission you know, look at what this thing is asking for. Very much like, you know, when we install an app on our phone. Uh, you know, it says, you know, this app wants access to the following resources. Do you want to give it to it? And similarly, it would be this USB thing wants to have, you know, 
be able to do the following things but, on your computer. But that you wouldn't know? mitigate all the potential attack vectors. For instance, they describe how you could uh, download onto a USB key a Ubuntu installation, verify the MD5, but between the time that you downloaded it and put it on the uh, USB key and the time you yeah. used it to install Ubuntu, it could be compromised by bad yes. USB. So that wouldn't yes. mitigate that. You're using it as mass Good storage point. at every point. Good point. Yes. Yes, you've got I mean we we fundamentally we're plugging a an untrusted computer into our computer. It would eliminate a lot of the attacks cuz they did talk about some of the attacks would turn a USB key a drive into a keyboard and that kind of thing, but right. It wouldn't be 100%. The the I think though it's very important a lot of people seem to misunderstand why this is an issue. Anything that you plug into your system, any manufacturer, you're trusting the manufacturer, whether it's software, hardware, whatever, you're yes. always trusting the manufacturer. Unless you have a process of vetting the source code and looking at all the firmware, when you buy a PC from Dell, you're trusting Dell. This, yeah. is, this is a serious problem, not because the manufacturer could do it, but because it could be reprogrammed in the field by a, a bad actor later, right? Right, right. And and now I don't know. Do we know how easy this is to implement? Sounds like you need some specific hardware to do it. Um, we don't yet, and and we'll find out. I was. It's not clear whether all of these devices can be reprogrammed through the USB channel. I I mean, from a manufacturing standpoint, it seems like it would be nice if it could. That is, if if there was like some way of doing something to the to the signals when you powered up so that it didn't come up as a USB, but it kind of like came up in programmable ready mode or something. Um, we just don't know. I mean, the the chips themselves typically have a huge number of pins, you know, 48 pins as opposed to the four pins on the USB bus. Ah. So, and, and there, there, there's, there's a universal standard called JTAG, which is a, a, a serial interface, which is, Probably all of these things support. I would imagine they used a, J, a JTAG interface, you know, like probing around, finding that on the processor, maybe even identified, you know, the make and model of the chip. And once you have that, you go to the specs and you know all about it. So it's not clear even how much reverse engineering they had to do. You know, we've heard stories, for example, of people changing the firmware on hard drives. Right. So, you know, hard drives now, are the same deal. I think hard drive manufacturers since then have started locking their firmware down. Right. That's my vague memory. Is that right? And it certainly <clears> makes <throat> sense at, at it certainly makes sense for a device like that where, you know, you've got someone, you know, first of all, not that many ma manufacturers. You've got Seagate, you've got right. Western Digital and so right. forth. You know, they're not going to want the, the the reputation cost of having hackable hard drives. Um, and they've also got a ton of proprietary interest in the technology that they're not wanting to, to leak out. There's really nothing proprietary about a thumb drive. I mean, they're commodity. They're in right. fish bowls at the checkout stand. You know, it's so it's like uh, it's also probably the case that this was not a great discovery, but just a light bulb went off for somebody because we've kind of known that these reprogrammable chips are in them all along. Well, and you right? wonder how long the NSA has known. The NSA has clearly known it. From uh -huh. So, I mean, but this is, it's not like you, a major, it's not really a discovery. It's like a, oh, you know what? Right, right. <laughs> that could be it's, bad. It's, yes, it's, 
It's like in order in order to do USB, you have to have a processor. And if that processor is accessible, then it and if you're clever, exactly as you said, Leo, you like, you know, changing the image on the fly. I mean, if you if you if say say that you 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 sold it as a 32 gig USB and it was actually 64. Now it's got a whole archive. I mean, it's got, <laughs> it's got every every <laughs> it's got every possible version of Linux that has ever existed. You know, like sitting in 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 the back room, able to roll it out whenever it wants to. Right. Yeah. And then what, another thing we don't know, and I'm sure we'll learn, uh, is if you have to make these rewritable, or if you could make ROM-based firmware USB drives that just couldn't be modified yeah i i from a technical standpoint the firmware is logically separate yeah. from the data right you know, the it's firmware, not on the drive it's 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 in a chip yes yes and so it just it i i see no nothing at all except they didn't care convenience you know yeah. when, when 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 they're five dollar you know, thumb drives in you know at the at the checkout stand coming in bulk quantity from China. Who cares? They they just it's whatever's cheapest for them. That's what they'll do. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, as this becomes, I guess so. The immediate takeaway is the point these guys have raised is valid, mm -hmm. and that is mm -hmm. every single place you stick your USB, uh, you need to make sure you need to be sure it's safe. Because, you know, I mean, and again, there are so many different chips. I mean, we, first of all, we don't, it's not really clear how possible it is to upload firmware through the USB interface. Right. What, what I know that what you're seeing is USB storage and, you know, we'll have, we'll have to see, you know, like how possible it is to actually reprogram the processor through the USB bus. Because, right. you know, that's different than cracking it apart, getting access to the, the, to the chip's pins themselves, and, like, creating a, an evil USB, which, for example, the NSA could do. But it's, so it's very different to, to, than to plug it in and have it infected through the USB channel. Right. That, that, that makes the threat much worse but also, I think there's less likely. It's less likely that 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 can even be done. Another point: we know that Stuxnet was spread to the Iranian centrifuges in their uranium enrichment plant through USB keys. But it was not likely this technique, right? It was probably auto run stuff on it, or was it? Do we know? We're we're thinking that it was it was unpatched machines that you that 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 they were counting on. Uh, you know, they they knew that these machines were not networked, that they were air gapped on purpose, but that it was necessary to move data between these these um, separate networks, and that they were able to use flaws in the USB protocol on the target operating system. Right. That's what we believe. D different technique uh, then, but we don't know for we sure. Know. I mean, this stuff's been around for a long time. Really interesting. Yeah. So. Um, just wanted to make a note. This is this this is not this means nothing. Except, it's it's a bit milestone for me and for the people in GRC's news group. But yesterday I turned over the first pre-completion squirrel code. They are now testing stuff. 
um, I, but it's not done. Um, the, I, because where I got was self-contained, I was able to let people start playing. Um, I have yet to do the identity import and export and backup and the protocol. Those are, even though they sound like a big deal, they're actually not, they're like, I've done the, the bulk of the work. And uh, we immediately hit a problem with Arrow. Uh, I don't have it. <laughs> I mean, and the, even on my Win 7 machines, the first thing I do is turn that ridiculous cycle waste off. Um, and, but there are a number of people who do have bleed through faded borders on their windows. And it's like, it took me 10 minutes and I fixed it. So that's working. Wine has a font sizing problem. I haven't even looked at it. I'll look at it this afternoon. But I just wanted to say that, you know, another milestone is reached. Uh, the gang is now pounding on the UI. Um, while they're doing that, I will work on finishing it. So, uh, uh, more progress. Um, I, I, in for la, for last week's Q and A, I ran I ran across a question um, that that actually trickled or, or or tickled an old memory of mine because uh, someone wrote and just said, Steve, all of a sudden, my external hard drive was not being recognized by Windows Seven. The error I'm getting when it's plugged in using a USB 2.0 SATA slash IDE combo adapter is unallocated 3.86 gigabytes unknown, not initialized. And he says, though the drive is two terabytes. If he says, if I try to initialize the disk drive, I get an error, quote, error cyclic redundancy check. And he said, my question is, if I purchase Spinrite, is it still possible to recover data from a dying disk drive. I love your show and I've been listening for over a year now. I've learned a lot. And what, what this, the reason that this kind of hit me as funny is that I remember 20 years ago when I had a room of tech support people at, at Gibson Research, uh, in the early days of Spinrite, Spinrite 1 and 2, um, you know, selling them on, we had both, we had both the five and a quarter and three and a half inch floppy drives and a manual and literature and things, you know, in the boxed product. And, you know, they were at Egghead and Micro Center and Fry's and so forth back in the day. And I, I remember I'd like, if I would like need to talk to one of my tech support guys, I'd like go to his desk and the phone just rang and he picked it up. Uh, and, and he said, you know, give some research tech support. And then there'd be a long pause while he's listening to the person. He'd go, yes, it does. Okay, fine. I'll transfer you to sales. And he'd hang up. <laughs> and and I, I, one of these guys was named Carl. And I said, Carl, what was that? And he says, oh, this is the, that's w what most of these calls are. I says, what? He says, they asked, does it really work? <laughs> <laughs> Or <laughs> and back then it was it was remember it was also doing a non destructive re low level format yes, very aggressive yes, yes. very th and you know, so people said is this safe to use yes and it is yes it is <laughs> I'll transfer I'll transfer you to sales, you to sales. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I was thinking you know I must have been affected by that because you'll, you'll remember my, my very short little slogan on the Spinrite pages at GRC where I've got the big Spinrite logo and just two little words down below. It says, it works. 
it works. Anyway, so I don't remember who's – I don't uh, know this guy's name who asked the question. I did respond to him. In fact, I wrote back and I said, I can't really say for sure, but your mention of CRC error is precisely the sort of trouble Spinrite was designed to find and fix. So I'd say that the chances were good. And if not, we'll be happy to refund your purchase price. Just tell sales that it didn't do what you hoped and needed. So that's nice. Uh, that, that's little, and, and, we, and, we, and yeah, we do. Yeah. We've always offered uh, anybody who's not happy uh, their money back because I, you know, I wouldn't never want to have them have them keep it if they didn't that's like it nice if it didn't you. work. That's nice, yeah. Hey, before we uh, go to uh, the next segment of the show, we're going to talk about uh, password managers. I gather. Yeah. Uh, let me talk about backup, if you don't mind, because that's something, uh, you know, that a lot of this stuff could be fixed if you had a good backup. We were talking about the crypto locker and the Synology crypto locker. If you had a backup of your Synology, you could just say, you're not getting my 0.6 bitcoins. See you later. Goodbye. Carbonite will back up your Synology. It will back up internal hard drives. It will back up network attached storage servers and, the, and everything else. It'll back it up. To the cloud where it's safe from fire, flood, famine. Uh, it's a great solution for individual users. Very affordable. Flat rate pricing means you pay once a year and get an unlimited backup storage. Uh, they also have business plans. One and a half million people use Carbonite right now. 50,000 small businesses to back up their data. Automatic, continuous backup. And if you're in a business, you know, uh, unlike uh, regular users, getting back on your feet is absolutely critical. Every minute it takes is business lost. So they have a guarantee, if you call Carbonite, to get your business back up in 15 minutes or less. They are the kings of backup, and I want you to try them absolutely free. Just go to Carbonite.com. You don't need a credit card, but do use the offer code security now when you sign up. You'll get two free months when you purchase you got to back it up to get it back. Take a look at the plans for home, for office, for servers, and sign up today at Carbonite.com. Personal plans start as low as $59.99 a year for everything on one computer. That's PC or Mac. That's, that's less than 5 bucks a month. you got to back it up to get it back. Carbonite.com. The offer code is security now, but you could try it free right now. Carbonite.com. That's what I've got Jenny set up with. Good. Yeah, it's perfect. You know, people who listen to this show are sophisticated enough. They may have cobbled their own solution from a variety of pieces. Um, but Or they might be mailing things to their mom. Or like you, mailing CDs to their mom. <laughs> I don't know how much longer that's going to last. Uh, no. <laughs> do you still do that? No, 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 not for years. It's That's the old way. Uh, yeah, she, she thought they were movies and tried to put them into her DVD <laughs> player. She said, honey, this movie doesn't play. It's like, oh, mom, oh, mom that's my, uh, that's my sales, oh. spin right sales for the last 10 years. Don't put that in your disc. Yeah. Uh, no, it's uh, nowadays because of high-speed internet, uh, online backup is really a great, simple solution for a lot of yeah. us. And for people who ju you just really you don't want to have to explain, once you install it on Jenny's computer, she doesn't even know it's there. It just does it. You don't have to think yep. about it. All right, let's. Uh, it's time to move okay. on. So, at the forthcoming Usenic's twenty third annual security symposium at two p.m. on Thursday, August twenty first, uh, four UC Berkeley researchers will present the 
result of a an extremely I, w- I would say a, an amazingly detailed dis- de- deconstruction of five password managers, um, most of which we've heard of. LastPass, RoboForm, My One Login, Password Box, and Need My Password. Actually, I don't think I've ever heard of Need My Password before. Um, uh uh, and in fact, it was a little disturbing. Uh, I have made a note here saying no auto login for need my password, no credential sharing, no password generation. Uh, the credential storage is only on their website and the user's login credentials are not encrypted before being sent to need my password. <laughs> okay, that sounds bad in a lot of respects. So I, this is like <laughs> NSA needs your password is... Uh, probably the right name for this or maybe nsa has your password so yeah they, the, these guys don't they, they, they didn't really do it um so these these four researchers went to amazing level to reverse engineer the de- and, and from an adversarial standpoint the f- the first page of my of my show notes leo has a diagram of one phase of the process they reverse engineered from last passes generation of something that's you know one of the many diagrams this is a 15 page detailed pdf um and i have the takeaway from it i just want to see if there's anything there, there, there are some other weird things they found. For example, there's one called My One Login, and they were a little concerned. And in their paper, they said they would talk about this later, but they never did. Although they also have a a more detailed technical report that will, they'll be producing later. Not this, you know. So this, this detailed as this 15 pages is, this is the short version of their research. Uh, and remember that I mentioned to you weeks ago that I was sure I'd seen somewhere that they were doing this before developing their own. And they do say that. I re-encountered that at the end of this paper. So this is where it is. They're planning to implement their own password manager. So I think the, uh, assuming everything is just as they say, they just wanted to really understand the challenge of doing this securely and it is a challenge prior to doing their own. Um, anyway, this one, this my one login has the weirdest hash. They they take the the user's password, even and odd characters separately, and then MD five hash them. What? It's like exactly, Why? exactly. That is like a worry because there it's as if somebody, first of all, you really don't want to use MD5 any longer because it just doesn't produce a large enough hash. So collisions or, or brute forcing is not that difficult. In fact, maybe the reason they did even and odd is specifically to avoid password lookup because MD5 is small enough that maybe they could, you know, do... Uh, uh, there are databases against commonly used passwords, although all they would have to do is reverse them or something. Anyway, it's, it sort of raised a red flag that they were using MD5, and then they were like, as if they thought 
that's separating them in odd and even character groups and separately hashing them and then merging that would generate a better result. Or maybe they only had access to MD5 hash in JavaScript. It's hard to understand what they were thinking, but it's a little strange. However, um, they're the only password manager that offers bookmarklets, which we'll talk about in a second, in a secure fashion, which I thought was interesting. So I don't, I don't mean to, to dump on these guys, and these researchers didn't either, because uh, bookmarklets are extremely challenging to do in a, in a secure fashion. So these guys looked at um, bookmarklet vulnerabilities, and of course, the, the idea for a bookmarklet is that it's actually possible, you know, we're familiar with bookmarks, which are basically a URL that, you know, you click on and it takes you to a page. Well, it turns out that you can put JavaScript in a bookmark and it becomes a bookmarklet, as it's called, and it will execute. So this is convenient for mobile browsers that typically don't support plugins. So, for example, with Chrome and Firefox, both that have mature, good plugin technologies, you don't need this because you install LastPass or, or RoboForm or whatever as an add-in to the browser, essentially enhancing the browser's intrinsic operation. But in Safari on iOS or um, browsers on Android where you don't have a plugin architecture, yet you'd still like access to your, your cloud-synced um, usernames and passwords through a password manager, you, you need to run code. And bookmarklets are the way that's done. The problem is that when you, when, and this is a big problem for, this whole, for the whole bookmarklet technology, when you click on the bookmarklet, it, it's running that JavaScript code, the bookmarks JavaScript code, in the context of the site that you're going to. So, so you know, the, the, you know, JavaScript needs to run in, 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 in a web browser context, you know, and, and the, the bookmark is it's not referring to a given site. It's, it's essentially a way of injecting JavaScript into the current page. The problem is you are vulnerable to deliberately evil JavaScript on that page. And there are, there are, there are normally you're in an iframe, hopefully you're in an iframe. It wasn't really clear from their paper whether, whether everybody who was supporting the bookmarklet option was using an iframe because browsers have gotten very good about supporting the, the separation of the context within an iframe from what's on the page. However, these guys take the position, and from what they said, I got the sense that perhaps not all of the password managers are using iframes with bookmarklets, which makes them a concern. The problem is that if you click on the bookmarklet, 
to log into a site and you're not yet logged in to your password manager, the only safe thing to do is leave that tab and go open a new tab and log in to the password manager, then come back. Only my one login does that. And so even though in some ways they were a little unsophisticated, uh, it may have been, in fact, that they don't have the technology to allow you to do an in-place login. It turns out that's the only thing these researchers believe is safe. The reason being that that it's just it's inherently problematical to run any JavaScript in the context of of a of another page, which itself has to have JavaScript enabled. In order for your bookmarklet JavaScript to run, that page has got to be running JavaScript. And in order to create the iframe, JavaScript has to run outside the iframe in order to in instantiate the iframe, which means there is an opportunity to subvert that. So what this is, what, what this ultimately means is if you were if you were not already logged in to a to your password manager and you were using a bookmarklet to log in to a site which was evil and had sophisticated scripting to recognize a number of different password managers you would um you would you would be presented with a a dialogue on the page created by the bookmarklet telling you you are not logged on to your password manager and asking you to do it right there. And these, gay, these guys make the what I think is a very good point, which is this is training people to put their password manager credentials in when the URL says www.youbetternottrustthissite.com because that's the nature of an iframe is that you're not seeing the URL of the iframe. That's all, that's hidden. You're seeing the URL of the page that's hosting the iframe. And if there's scripting running on the page, it could have subverted the bookmarklet's code before the iframe got created. And what that means is a 100% full credential capture. They would capture, this evil site could capture your password manager login credentials. And then they would have all, all of your credentials managed by that. So obviously that's not good. So the, 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 the main takeaway from this paper in terms of like, what did we learn from it what can you do is if you're a user of bookmarklets, log in to the password manager on a tab on that manager's site. Go, you know, go there, log in. Your browser will then have have the authentication cookie for that domain. Then when you use the bookmarklet, and you know, I mean, I got a sense, you know, their their position is if you're 
if if web developers are really really careful you can probably use bookmarklets securely but th- th- i came away with a with you know more of a feeling of concern than than comfort from this it just you know it's a it's sort of a last ditch measure well for example i don't use them on ios i when i run across when i'm logging into something on ios i will go over to my last pass tab browser open and if i'm not using that browser i just generally use safari um i will open the vault and i copy my password first onto the clipboard then move over to go back to safari paste that in then i go back over and get my username and i do it second because that way it overwrites the password on the clipboard and i'm not leaving it oh, there that's smart you're smart and then i move back over put my username in and log in i mean yes it's not as convenient as you know clicking but it it just to me i understand that better the problem is there's just if you don't have a plugin you really don't have good security containment and you know running r- running javascript in the context of a site that you can't vouch for is just it it is worrisome and that's the way bookmarklets operate it's going to get better nature. with ios 8 and the next iphone because uh, extensions will allow uh, one yes. password's already said they're going to do this, and I presume LastPass yes. will to uh, um, uh, you know kind of interact with Safari and do it uh, as they do now on Android. Just do it as yes. you're there. And speaking of iOS, we should we should note the news yes. that uh, that uh, eight is scaling back those security concerns that uh, that Jonathan uh, pointed out, and that we've talked about for two weeks. Um, they're like like the PCAP daemon is no longer yeah. running uh, in the background all the time. This is in beta uh, five of iOS eight. They took out a lot of the stuff people were bugged about, so that's good. And the specific wording, I had it was just happening as as I was getting ready for the podcast, but I saw some specific wording that said those will no longer be available to over wireless protocols. Right. So they they it sounds like they are they they're deliberately saying, oh, you know, you're right. This is too, this is too permissive. We need we need to back down on that. They're so, responding. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's great that's and news. and very quickly. Yeah, and and better in eight than in nine. I mean, I'm glad that we are in this at this place in the cycle where they're able to 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 do that and and work it out. Um, before we go on, yes, good. <laughs> I was going to say I now would see, be a good time. I can see what's going where you're going with this. So before we go on, by the way, did they talk about? Um, Last pat, they're specifically looking at at, at bookmark uh, vulnerabilities. Do, do, are they uh, going to look at other stuff too? Or, um, yeah, uh, th- that seemed to be the bad one. Okay. Um, did they talk the, about LastPass at all? Uh, you do a a, a, a sponsor drop in, and I'm going to scan my notes oh, for because I have four okay. I have four pages of them, so this is perfect. Okay, good. Little break while we a little break in the action. Uh, while we mention our friends at IT Pro. TV. We know a lot of you are listening to security now for educational purposes. I know that. Professors use this in their classroom. A lot of you just say, I need to polish up my IT skills. Security now is great for that. But there is a, uh, a company that bases their business on us with our blessings and uh, has done a really great job of making it easy for you 
to polish your IT skills, to take the certification tests you need to take, to get a better job in IT, or just to be a better IT pro. It is called IT Pro TV, an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. You can watch on your computer, your tablet, your smartphone. You can, uh, if you have a year subscription, download all of the content and put it on a device, take it up in the air, on the airplane or whatever, not have to be online. You can watch on the Roku, which is a great idea. Put it on the big screen TV and, uh, and you know, just leave it running all day. They actually, uh, very much like us, I'm see if they're live right now. No, they're not. But they're live much of the day. They're recording 30 hours of new programming every week. That, that's actually probably more than we do. Um, with Tim, Don, and their great trainers. They have courses on Apple, Microsoft, Cisco. They've got the A+, the CCNA, the Security+, Plus, the MCSA. If I go to their course library, you'll see a huge variety of courses, all organized by the pages and questions in the exams. So you can study for just that part you need. It's so much better than a study guide, and it's a lot less expensive than going to IT boot camp. You learn at your own pace, Learn the stuff you need to know. You can interact directly with the show host via live chat during the show. They have web-based Q&As specific to study topics. It's like a study group wherever you are. You, you, they've even added a new web interface and learning management system so you can track your project uh, progress. They've got virtual machine sandboxing so you can get in the lab there with hands-on practice right from your computer with any HTML5 browser. The Measure Up practice exams are included with your subscription. That's worth 79 bucks alone. They even have corporate accounts. So if you've got an IT department that needs some brush up, this is it. ITPro.tv slash security now. Go there right now. You can watch the free stuff and get a sense of how well produced it is, how fun it is to watch. Normally $57 a month, $570 for an entire year. It's very affordable. But we have a special offer, and this is their way of thanking Twit viewers for inspiring them to do this. 30% off for the life of your account when you use the offer code SN30, Security Now 30. SN30. So go to ITProTV, ITPro.tv slash security now. Use the code SN30 for 30% off. This is really great stuff. You will learn. You'll learn easier and faster than ever before. It's just great. And you can feel, feel good. You know, you get that A-plus certificate. You can say, hey, Leo doesn't have one of those. ITPro.tv slash Security Now. We thank them so much for their support of Steve and the Security Now program. Last okay, pass. so What do you think? The bottom line was, remember that, or I, I don't think I did say this or not this week, this was all done a year ago. This oh. was last August oh. that, the, that the research was performed. All of the vendors were notified of this, this four-man team's findings. And all but need my password responded and fixed whatever was known within days. So, so, oh, so this has been mitigated almost a year ago. Yes, um, what, but, and, and what they found was instructive because it just, it, it helps to demonstrate just how hard this yeah. is to do. Yeah. Um, w there are two known, uh, classes of 
problems, sort of web general web vulnerabilities, which we've talked about. We did separate podcasts on them each. One is a CSRF, cross-site request forgery, and that exploits the trust a site has in a user's browser. Um, so the user's browser has authentication that causes a, a website to trust it, but a cross-site request forgery is a way of of an attacker essentially masquerading as that user's browser's credentials. You know, essentially getting that uh, abusing the the site's trust in the browser. The other is cross-site scripting, where that exploits the trust a user has in the site. So, you know, like where you believe you're at one site and you're actually at a, at a different site. So as an example, they, they, they found an attack on LastPass, which, which I can live with, even if it wasn't fixed a year ago, um, where, and, and this gives you a sense for how hard these guys had to work to even, even a year ago to find anything. A LastPass user must have created one of those last pass one-time passwords. You know, those long strings you're able to just ask LastPass to give you some and you could like have them in your wallet or put them somewhere uh, as an emergency authentication. Um, if the attacker knows the user's uh, username, so they don't, they only need the username, and somehow arranges to run their code inside the user's browser. So some, so this is a cross-site request forgery attack. And in the paper, they don't explain how that happens. So there's, so there's another barrier. You know, somehow you've got to go to a malicious site, which is running, and then it's running JavaScript in your browser you have created a one-time password and they know your last pass username, then even though they don't know that one-time password, they're able to, running in your browser and essentially trading on your credentials with LastPass, obtain uh, a copy of the encrypted credential database. Now, they have no way of knowing your one-time password, so they cannot use it to de- – they can't use what they don't know to decrypt the database. And so the only thing these guys were able to do is a little more than nothing, but, but there were three things. They said uh, the database is encrypted, but the website names are not. So the attacker can know the site's the user uses with LastPass. And remember, all these other things have to happen first in order for them to get the encrypted blob. Um, And who knows? And again, this is a year ago. So maybe Joe is now encrypting the domain names, if that's possible. I I, I don't know. Uh, Armed with the encrypted record, an attacker could brute force the user's master LastPass password. But remember, that's now... PBKDF2 like a thousand times, you know. So there's password-based key derivation function making that completely infeasible unless they use a really dumb password. And LastPass now 
you know, chides you for trying to use really dumb passwords. So even that's not easy any longer. And it like audits your passwords to make sure that they're, you know, not bad. So all kinds of mitigations are up against that. And then finally, they, they said uh, the attacker impersonating the user through cross-site request forgery can delete credentials from the LastPass database despite being unable to obtain them. So, you know, your security is preserved, but someone could get up to some mischief a year ago if they were able to get themselves into this position, all only if you had unused one-time passwords as sort of a gating factor. Because, what you know, again, the, the guys at LastPass worked, you know, tried to work through giving people options and making them secure. But as is always the case, with those additional aspects or factors of convenience comes some trade-off. Sounds like they did a good job in making it as difficult as possible for anyone to get any leverage. And by comparison, again, a year ago, using cross-site request forgery in RoboForm, it is possible for an attacker to update, delete, or add arbitrary credentials to a user's RoboForm credential database. It's like, okay, again, not decrypt them, not impersonate the user, not do anything they really want to, but, you know, just sort of mess with them. Um, And then there is a cross-site scripting exploit in Need My Password, which allows for a complete account takeover. So that one was the scariest one. They didn't give us any details. And I would say, well, but it was a year ago, except that the Need My Password people never responded. They're the one of the five that never responded in any way. Maybe they fixed them. Maybe they never even got the message. Who knows? And then lastly, uh, those were under the category of web vulnerabilities. The final was, an uh, again, a really sort of edge case authorization vulnerability. They, they, there are a number of these password managers which allow credential sharing where you're able to authorize somebody else who's also a member of the same password manager who has an account with the same password manager, you're able to authorize them to use your login. Right. I've done that to Lisa. I've sent my uh, Wall Street Journal login to her via last Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, that's tricky. It's another example of, you know, the kind of thing we would like to be able to do, but we're, we're by, by having this be, in the browser, it's challenging to do it safely. Um, they gave examples where password box and my one login could be exploited um, given like some really nearly impossible to create circumstances. In one example, my one login's credential sharing gets authentication and authorization slightly confused. Authenticating being obviously identifying who a user is. Authorization being what that identified user is able to do. Um, And so these guys spotted a a glitch in the logic. And and the way this worked was if if the first user who had the credentials 
shared credentials with two others and revoked the credentials from one of the others because there was a serial number that was trying to be unique but simply incrementing. And unfortunately, they didn't encipher it in order to make it an unpredictable value. And actually, you could argue if you everyone would have to know what the cipher key was, so that wouldn't work either. So maybe if they could have used a pseudo-random number, a big pseudo-random number, they didn't do that. They used an incrementing value. And then that allowed the other person with the, who was sharing credentials with the first to collude with the first of the other people whose credentials had been revoked and and there was a chance that that person could still get credentials shared. It's like, whoa, okay. I mean, so, you know, these guys were really pushing the limit of, of you know, finding vulnerabilities. Again, this is good. This is what we need security researchers to do. They reported their results to these password managers who fixed them a year ago and and thanked them, I'm sure. So, you know, there wasn't anything that I saw as being like some disaster. Um, we, we, I think anyone coming away from this uh, in a couple of weeks when this is presented at Usenix will think, okay, yes, this is not easy. We are, we are trying to run trusted code in a fundamentally hostile environment. Bookmarklets is maybe a bridge too far. Bookmarklets to me just seem like, eh, it's, you know, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for features. So there isn't another way to do this. You'd absolutely, if, if, you know, the key takeaway, if you're a bookmark user, do not ever log into your password manager on the page that you're trying to log into. Um, Go to a different tab, log in, come back so that you're already logged in when you use the bookmarklet. That I would say. But again, remember, for, for, for even that to be vulnerable, there would have to be JavaScript on that page explicitly waiting. I mean, just in laying in wait for someone to use bookmarklets that they have reverse engineered and are going to abuse. So... While it's possible, you know, it's not the case that, you know, Amazon is going to do that. When you've received a page over an HTTPS connection, you you trust the JavaScript and you're wanting to just use a bookmarklet to log you into job to, to Amazon because you, you, you no longer remember any of your passwords. And, of course, with any luck, we'll have Squirrel that will save us from all of this before long. It all comes back to Squirrel, doesn't it? <laughs> It always comes down to squirrel. Bushy-tailed little devil. <laughs> you still use LastPass. I still use LastPass. Yep. Until somebody yep. gives me a reason not to, I shall continue. Exactly. I will, uh, I, with any luck, there will be a phase-over to squirrel in the, in the future, but it'll be LastPass until then. Oh, I guess squirrel, well, squirrel would replace LastPass in terms of 
login passwords, but I use LastPass oh. to store my social security and other yes. things like that. Yes, yes, so. I actually do too. I, yeah. I use it as my form fill-in uh, a lot. And for also. credit cards, I, yes. Yes. Very yeah. handy. And, and I trust it for that. Yeah. You can do that in the browser, but why? Yeah. Yeah. Stephen, we've come to the end of another fabulous edition of Security Now. Every week... I tried to watch The Strain. It's too spooky for me, by the way. Are you still enjoying yeah, it? Yeah, I'm, I'm a few episodes behind because uh, I've just got, you know, Sunday so night has become, crazy. oh, my goodness. Yeah, uh, 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 Masters of Sex is back. Mm. Are, you, are you watching that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Actually, and the last... I shouldn't do that because it's not, it's a sexy show, but it's no. not about yes. sex. No. It's about Masters and it's, Johnson, it's, it's, and it's really yes. uh, about... It's more and more about uh, women uh, and their sexuality in the fifties, and not just women, gays, and uh, all sorts of there, things. There is there is a lot of that. Yeah, it's yeah, just it's, it's really good. Great, it's a great HBO. The or, last no, week's not episode HBO. was the not this last Sunday, but the one before fight, where that's the background is the the boxing match. What an one of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen. Actually, that's exactly what Jenny said. She she, yeah. she said it. She thinks it was like the best thing. Mind she, like it's like, like a Broadway yes. play. Stunning. Yes, that's yeah. exactly what she said. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the dialogue, everything, the uh, just uh, really amazing. Um, yeah. So I watch that too. Yeah. Lisa yeah. doesn't like that. She doesn't. She's kind of sex negative. She doesn't. <laughs> no, that's not true either. Uh, let's stop now before I get into too much trouble. The show is brought brought to you. She's got something you can throw at me. Her laptop. I only said that because she was in the room. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this show is brought to you by the grace and good wit and charm of Mr. Stephen Gibson. You'll find him at grc.com. That's his website, the Gibson Research Corporation. Well, and the good offices of Leo Laporte and Twitten Company. Yeah, and we, we, all, we provide. Make it happen. We provide the electricity. Yes, and the bandwidth. <laughs> and, the, and the personality. And the bandwidth. And half of the personality. <laughs> <laughs> One fifth of the personality. Uh, you can get those. So at, at Steve's site, he has kind of a, a little bit of a little different flavor of security. Now he's got a 16 kilobit audio file if you really have no bandwidth. Um, and he also has a transcript. Actually, that's probably the lowest bandwidth version written by a, an actual human being. Steve pays for it. So that's where somebody I mean. asked for Morse code and that would have been even lower bandwidth. Mm, yeah. But you know, I, did, I didn't think we wanted to did, do did that. Dot, we could do an dash. automatic. We could do an automatic translation, though, from from. Uh, from, I don't from think Morse code is lower bandwidth. Isn't ASCII more efficient than Morse code? Get to work, Gibson. I'll think about that. So uh, the longest character, what would it be? I don't know, four or five dots and dashes. Oh, that's a good point. Because bits, yeah, you're eight bits and is going to be a single character. Ah, no, dots and dashes. Uh, if they're ones and zeros, yeah. that would be more efficient. Yeah. Maybe half, yeah. and, half and, and also less. remember that... That we don't have compression with ASCII. All characters are the same size. Right. But Samuel Morris deliberately designed his code yes. so that the most frequently occurring characters were the shortest. So some characters are six. So the most would be six bits. The least would be three. I don't know. Well, there's dit. There's dit? And yeah. da? Well, so there you go. Yeah, yeah. E and, and T. And there's or no something. upper and lower case. You know, we were both. Were you a Boy Scout? I was a Boy Scout. I had to. That was you a learned Morse code. Did it? Did not? Did it, well, you you're a ham, didn't you? Have to do. You don't that have to, to do it. Mice? That's why I became a ham. Uh, I would not okay. become a ham when I had to learn Morse code. <laughs> I stopped at radio telephone operator third class. 
So, yes, Morse code would be the most efficient form. Take longer to listen to, though, okay? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> I'm yeah. just saying. Uh, <laughs> GRC.com. You can also go there to leave questions. We will do a Q&A episode probably next week in all likelihood. Yep. Uh, that's GRC.com slash feedback. Spin rights there. Don't forget the world's best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. And uh, lots of other free stuff too. The only thing that you pay for that entire in that entire site is spin right. Everything else is free. GRC.com. He's on the uh, Twitter at SGGRC. Here at the Twit website, twit.tv slash SN, we have full bandwidth audio and even video, as as much even high def video. If for some strange reason you want to see every pore. Uh, that's at <laughs> twit.tv slash SN. You can also subscribe, and I would recommend that. That way you miss not an episode. Nary a security now. Just to go to your favorite podcatching app. iTunes is a good one. A lot of people use that. Stitcher is very popular all of a sudden. We're one of the top uh, technology podcasts on yeah, Stitcher. Security then is far less compelling. It's got to be now. now. Yeah, get it, yeah, get it, really get it while it's fresh. Want... Piping yeah. hot out of the yeah. editing ovens. Uh, usually it takes about two hours to get it out, maybe sometimes a little longer uh, on uh, Tuesdays. That's when we do the show, Tuesday afternoon, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2000 UTC. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. See you My next friend. time. And New Year's Eve. Bye-bye. Yes, Bye-bye. indeed. Bye-bye. Yep. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.